Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is the Feast of the Holy Trinity. It's the Sunday that everyone remembers as the day that we confess the rather long Athanasian Creed, which articulates the Scripture's teaching on the mystery of the Holy Trinity. It's a time in which some people get a little confused because they hear this word Catholic. The word Catholic means the universal uh, Christian religion. It's a small c. It's not referring to a specific denomination. And it's also the time in which we hear Jesus' own words from John chapter 5, when Jesus talks about those who have done good to eternal life and those who have done evil to everlasting death, uh, which does refer to the mark of a Christian. Those who are faithful are viewed by him as, as by God as having done that which is good. We are credited with the very righteousness of Christ by grace through faith. It's interesting that the observance of the Feast of the Holy Trinity is a relative newcomer in the Christian church year. Even though our triune God is eternal, has existed from eternity, with God the Son begotten from eternity, and God the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son in eternity. So until a point in the 14th century in the Western Church, this day, this Sunday, the Sunday after Pentecost, was known as the octave of Pentecost, that is the eighth day of Pentecost. And, and now the Church has changed the Sunday from being the octave of Pentecost to the Feast of the Holy Trinity. And even though the Sunday title has changed, and some of the traditions that go with it, the gospel reading remains the same from when it was known, this day was known as the octave of Pentecost. As Jesus teaches, we must be born of water and the Spirit to be saved. And Jesus talks about the work of the Spirit being like the wind, which blows as, as it wishes. The Spirit accomplishes that which he pleases. And as Jesus also refers, Jesus also refers to the Holy Trinity when Jesus said to Nicodemus, and there we heard truly, truly. Remember a few weeks ago I said the Greek is amen, amen. Amen, amen, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is using the plural because he is including the Father and the Spirit along with him. Now, Nicodemus was confused by what Jesus was saying. He didn't understand what it meant to be born again, as Jesus was saying. He was thinking, do I have to enter into my mother's womb in order and come back out? Is that what, is that what you mean, Jesus, by being born again? And people, even to this day, have troubles understanding what Jesus is teaching when he says that we must be born again. I remember as a child learning a song in my church uh, through some children program, bullfrogs and butterflies, they've both been born again. The point is that, that uh Bullfrogs, you know, they start out as tadpoles, butterflies start out as caterpillars, and then they 
like are born again, they become uh, something else. And the Christian too is born as a sinner, but then must be born again so that that person is a saint and added into God's family. But those who like to focus on that type of born again and even use the illustration, bullfrogs and butterflies, often have a misunderstood version of what it means to be born again. To be born again is simple as Jesus teaches. To be born of water and the Spirit, that's holy baptism. God adds us to his family through the waters of holy baptism. But many teach that to be born again is not the sacrament which Christ has instituted and given for his church. But instead, they teach that to be born again is a spiritual makeover that it, that by which the Holy Spirit enables Christians to accept Jesus into their hearts as if they had some sort of, I don't know, force field around them that prevented Jesus from coming in until they made the cognitive decision to let Jesus into their hearts. And then their, their desire, their intention, because they've committed themselves to Christ, is to have their will be conformed to God's will. Many then who hold to this type of view of being born again, they look at baptism as just an outward testimony of this faith that they now have inward, not as God's action of as giving them this new birth and regeneration. And many will also pinpoint the day in which they had this born-again experience, the day in which they pledged themselves to God and gave themselves to him. But Jesus makes it much simpler. The, God, the Holy Spirit, works as God wills. God adds sinners to his family, declaring sinners to be saints through the sacrament of baptism. So through baptism, we are truly born again. In baptism, we are united to the death of Jesus and we die to sin. And in baptism, we are united to the resurrection of Jesus and we rise to newness of life. God here does the action. We are the recipients. God is the one who works our conversion. We do not contribute to our salvation. After all, before we were even born, that is the first time, God loved us and sent his only begotten son to die for us. So he paid for our sins even before we could even ask him to pay for them. He even promised to Adam and Eve that he would earn their salvation even while they were trying to still hide from God and they were busy making excuses for why they ate the forbidden fruit. And yet Jesus comes to them. God comes to them and illumines them and promises that Christ will take away their sin. Unlike most Christian churches, as Lutherans, we believe in divine monergism, which is the teaching that God does the entire work of salvation and conversion, even that work of us being born again. Why is there so much disagreement over what it means to be born again within Christendom? Why are there so many out there who reject infant baptism and the clear teachings of Scripture concerning the new birth and holy baptism? What we believe, teach, and confess concerning these doctrines is certainly the, major the minority in our lands. 
So does this mean that because we are in the minority as Lutherans that we are wrong? Are we now behooved to accept what the majority of Christian churches teach about being born again? We are not. As you heard from Dr. Dieterding last week, we abide by what God teaches in Holy Scripture. The Spirit of God guides us through his word, which is recorded in the Bible. During the time of Elijah, the prophets of Baal outnumbered the prophets of God. But yet, yet, God's word remained the truth. On Good Friday, the crowd majority was shouting to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And during the 300s, there appeared to be fewer Christians than those who followed the teachings of a false teacher named Arius. Arius rejected the truth concerning the Holy Trinity, in particular the personhood of Christ, claiming that Jesus is a creation of God the Father. More people were following that false teaching. That's how the Nicene Creed developed, and perhaps part of the reason why the Nicene the Athanasian Creed articulates the three persons of the Trinity in the way that it does so that we can combat that false teaching of Arianism, which is alive and well among the Jehovah Witnesses today. Majorities do not establish truth, but instead God's word establishes truth. Many think that the Christian church must, cha must change her teachings in order to remain relevant to our modern world. Many think that the, the most important thing for the Christian church to do today to survive is to go along with the cultural trends that we see around us and the societal beliefs that are constantly changing. These things change so much like reeds blowing in the wind. And people figure we must just do what the world is doing. They figure that they, and, and many who feel this way, figure that they are doing God and God's people a service. As they say, church, get with the times. The 20, we live in the 21st century. But they're not doing God or you as God's people a service. For God does not need new teachings nor does he change to go along with the changes in society, and really, little changes under the sun anyway. And God does not need our help or our counsel to figure out how to win souls for Christ in our day. For God already knows. In our epistle, St. Paul asks a great question as he quotes Isaiah 40. Our epistle is fitting, by the way, for the Feast of the Holy Trinity, because we confess in the epistle, O oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And then Paul asks that question, quoting Isaiah 40, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? So who among us, or who among mankind is God's counselor? Who can teach God a thing or two? Who has some knowledge that God does not already know? What is it that we can offer to him that he doesn't already understand? 
Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. That word can be understood as our helper or our comforter or our counselor. He is the one who helps us as he converts our hearts of stones into hearts of living faith. He comforts us with the gospel by directing our hearts and minds to our Savior Jesus, who shed his innocent blood on our behalf and earned our salvation and grants it to us as a free gift. And he counsels us, that is, the Spirit counsels us through his word. And this teaching that the Holy Spirit is our counselor, by the way, is expressed in today's third distribution hymn during communion. Godly counsel is a blessed thing, and we should gladly receive it. The scriptures were, after all, written for our learning that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. And as it is written, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Martin Luther, he described the word of God as his counselor when he said, the word is greater than a hundred thousand worlds, yea, greater than heaven and earth. That word shall be my faithful counselor and sturdy tree to which I will cling in order that I may bear and stand it. If we do not cling to that tree, our nature is much too weak to bear the burning hatred and envy of the world and to withstand the crafty plots and fiery darts of the devil. Godly counsel comes through God's word, first and foremost. Godly counsel also comes through the ministers whom God sends as they faithfully proclaim to you God's word. And godly counsel can also come from faithful Christians. Again, we should gladly, ex gladly and readily receive such godly counsel. But often we don't want it, especially if we are being counseled to amend our ways or our beliefs because it hurts our old Adam and we often find it easier to pander to our sinful nature's desires or to just go along with the flow, the societal trends that we see around us. And we must resist ungodly counsel despite how well-meaning it may seem. I recall an occasion when I was a seminary student when an older man who is not Lutheran, I think he was Methodist, not positive, and, is a and was a member of the Masonic Lodge, and he was wanting to offer me some counsel. Now remember, as Lutherans, we do not agree with religious elements and vows made by secret societies and with lodges. But this man, he basically tried to convince me that it doesn't matter what people believe. As long as they're sincere, they're going to heaven, is the claim that he wanted to make. He wanted to show me, and very politely, I must add, that our beliefs in the Missouri Synod are too restrictive and should be changed. Now, the approach, the humbleness by which he was counseling me and trying to instruct me was very good. His words would seem wise if not matched with, with the words of Scripture. And he was certainly sincere. So he had all of the, many of the marks that would come across as one who is offering good counsel, one whom people should listen to. But I would not have it. Why? Was I just being too stubborn? Or was I disrespecting my elders? Or was I just wanting to get into an argument? 
No, none of these. Instead, this man who is trying to instruct me in teachings that are contrary to the word of God is not God's counselor, nor am I God's counselor. I have nothing to instruct God about. What God teaches me in his word is the truth that I must adhere to. I cannot accept any counsel that contradicts the teachings of the scripture. Luther said it well when he was put on trial, being told to recant of his writings at the Diet of Worms in April of 1521. He said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of scripture, by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything. Since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. You see, no one can be God's counselor. For we did not create God. Instead, God created us. God, then, is the one who teaches us. He shows us what is truly pleasing in his sight. He teaches us what in this world we must also reject. He teaches us that which is true and good morality. He teaches salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And even though many will try to counsel God, even claiming that God has teach, changed his teachings on some matters, God remains immutable, which means that God does not change. And many will offer us ungodly counsel as Satan is seeking to pull us away from the truths of Scripture, even the teaching of the mystery of the Holy Trinity as we have confessed it in the Athanasian Creed. But we will remain steadfast to God's word. We will confess him as he reveals himself, even if we cannot fully comprehend that which he teaches, especially when it comes to matters concerning the Trinity. We will receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls, and we will rejoice in this truth, which is what love does. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. When our sins are forgiven by grace through faith, we are set free. We are no longer bound to our sins, to our pasts, or even the, the pollution we receive from others through their sinful actions against us. We are no longer bound to Satan's chains we are no longer bound to his lies. We are no longer bound to the shifting sands of society's opinions. We are no longer bound to death. For as our Lord Christ lives, so shall we. We are truly children of God, born again by water and the Spirit, baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are redeemed by Christ who died for us on the cross and rose from the grave. And so we are heirs having the hope of eternal life. Such blessings we truly have when God's word illumines us and the Holy Spirit guides us, working faith in us. And we are then recipients of the treasures of Christ. Thanks be to God. 
Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.